0: You know, we started several weeks ago this series over generosity, and the series is called The Generosity Paradox, and we've been looking at generosity from different perspectives of different biblical characters. We started out with David, the King David, and here's what we took from King David, that he said this, that everything in the world or everything that we have is owned by God. Now, so many times we think what we earn, what we get, what we receive is ours, and we get to give God a little part that's his, but in reality, everything is God's. He is the creator. He is the maker, he is the provider of all that we have. And he wants us simply to be good stewards of what he has. And so when we are generous with what he gives us, it's not like we're giving something of ours since it's not really ours. We're simply just moving things in different accounts so God can have and move around what he wants to. So that's what we learned the first week from King David. And then last week we, we fast forward about a, thir- about a thousand years and we said not the perspective of David, but let's look at the perspective of Jesus. And if you remember last week, if you were here, we we learned that Jesus was about giving us things, but he didn't want those things to become our focus. Our focus should always be our relationship with the Heavenly Father, and through that relationship, we know how to handle those things. And so this week, I want to bring to another character going from Old Testament to New Testament. Let's go back to the Old Testament and look at King Solomon. The Bible says this, that King Solomon was one of the wisest, if not the wisest man that ever walked the face of this earth. One of my favorite stories to remind me how wise he was, this is found, I believe, in 1 Kings, but the Bible says this, that one time there were these two ladies, and they lived in the same house together, and they gave birth about the same time. So in this house with these two ladies, there are little bitty babies in there, and about three days after the babies were born, one of the moms woke up one night and realized that her baby had died in the middle of the night. And you can imagine how distraught she was, how upset she was, how sad she was. And she had this baby that she had longed and lived for her whole life to have, but it no longer had a breath in its body. And so here's how the story goes, that she snuck over to the other mom's room. And while that mom was sleeping, she swapped the babies from one another. She took her own dead child, placed it in the crib next to this mom, took the living child and took that living child back to be her own child. And so you can imagine what it was like when the two ladies both woke up the next morning. The one mom whose child hadn't actually died but now has a dead child in her crib, she looks at it and she screams, she cries, she's distraught. But as any mom knows, that wasn't her baby. And so she went and saw the other woman, saw what baby she had, and she quickly figured out what was going on. But back in those days, there was no DNA, there was no fingerprinting. It was one word versus the other. And so you can imagine the fight that took place between these two women accusing the other one this is my baby no this is my baby but nobody could prove whose baby it was and so the bible says this that they took their case before king solomon and they both went in there with the one baby that was still alive and they explained this situation this is my baby no that's her baby she took my baby going back and forth back and forth and finally king solomon in all of his wisdom and told him to look at one of his guards and said bring me a sword and once he got the sword in his hand he said please hand me the child so with a child in one hand and a sword in another hand, he looked at the two ladies and said, I have no idea whose child this one really is. But I know you both want a child, so I'll do the only thing I can do that's fair. I will split the baby in half, cut the baby in half, and give you half and give you half. And the mom whose child had previously already died, that this wasn't her child, she said, King, you are so wise, that sounds like a great idea. And the mother whose child this really was, the living child, cried out, Oh, King, no. I don't care if she has the baby, just let the baby live. And the Bible says that King Solomon looked at these two women, looked at his entire court and said, give the child to the woman who was willing to let it live, even if she couldn't keep it. Because only a mother's true love would sacrifice that way for her child. And I hear that story and I read that story. I'm going, that's a really wise man. I would not have known even how to start solving and and figuring out how to do that situation. So King Solomon proved his his wisdom in that one particular instance. And so if someone asks, so why would we go to King Solomon for wisdom on how to handle our money? Why would we go to King Solomon when we talk about this topic of generosity? Any man that can figure that situation out with the two wives and the two moms and the two babies, probably we should listen to in lots of other situations also. And so this morning, I want to take you to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And if you've ever read much of King Solomon's writings, both in the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, many times he writes in what I just call kind of bit-sized morsels of truth. Instead of writing long narratives or long paragraphs of just wisdom, he often just divided up in just kind of one sentence type of things. And so as we read Ecclesiastes chapter 5 today, that's exactly what we're going to find. He's going to give us six, what I call morsels of truth, morsels of truth about money and finances. And so we're going to start in verse 10, and if you want to join there with me, if you've got your outline, we'll kind of put some uh, kind of common day language to some of this, but here's what it says in verse, chapter 5, verse 10. Those who love money, King Solomon says, will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. And if you're taking notes, basically here's what he's saying. The more you have, the less you're satisfied. The more you have, the less you're satisfied. Let me prove my point to you. This evening, go home. About 6 o'clock tonight when the Broncos get ready to come on TV, going for their world record fourth, fifth win in a row on their way to the Super Bowl, I want you to grab a big package of potato chips, Lay's salty potato chips, and I want you to sit on your couch to watch the whole game. As the kickoff takes place, open that bag of salty, wonderful-tasting Lay's potato chips and reach in and eat one. One. And be done for the night. Watch the rest of the game, but only eat one potato chip. Now, your laughter sounds more not like a humorous laugh, more like an uncomfortable guilty laugh that I hear right now. And that's exactly right. There's no way. There's no way that you could just eat, uh, get one potato chip out of a whole bag sitting right there in front of you and be satisfied. There's something about it. We want more and more and more potato chips until the whole bag is done. That's a great example of the way money is. And Solomon was saying there is a danger of money. Money is not wrong. He's just simply saying there is a danger or a difficulty that we have when it comes to money. And that is this. Once we have money, it's never enough. We want more and more and more and more. I rem- I'm reminded of Henry Ford, the founder of the Ford Motor Company. After he started the company, became one of the wealthiest humans or wealthiest Americans in America, Um, he had built his fortune, run this big company, and he made this comment. He said, I was happier doing a mechanic's job. At some point, more and more and more. Automated the building so he could put a car in almost every single person's home in America. He had amassed a fortune, but yet he looked back going, I have more and more and more. And I want more and more and more. Yet I was happier when I was a simple mechanic. And so Solomon was trying to give us the wisdom to say this. The more you have when it comes to money, the less you're satisfied. Here's the second thing he said there in verse 11. He says this in the passage. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what's good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your very fingers. Here's how I would summarize this one. The more you have, the more you realize it doesn't do you any good. The more you have, the more you realize it does you absolutely no good. You see, money may be good to buy you more stuff, but money never buys you better relationships. Because any lottery, big lottery winner will tell you that all their friends and family come out of their woodwork and all they want is the stuff that the more can provide. Yet when the more runs out, the friends run run away. The family is no longer around. And so it is true joy in life is found in authentic relationships, not in abundance of stuff. Solomon was right. The more you have, the more you realize it really does you no good. Here's the third difficulty, he says, as you were just working. Like I said, he just writes in these little morsels of truth. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 12, he says this. People who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or much, but the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. I don't know about you, but I sleep really well (laughs) because I'm not rich, okay? Some days I'd like to see what it's like to be rich and not be able to sleep so well. But here's what he's saying in there. The more you have, the more you have to worry about it. Because when you're rich, you got to worry about this house, and you have to worry about this investment. You have to worry about this and this. And when we have money, more and more money, it just increases the worries in our life. W.H. Vanderbilt he was one of the richest Americans that lived in the 1800s. And this is what he said. The care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. Because all that money he amassed, one of the richest Americans during the 1800s. And he said, it just gave me more and more and more worries. But Solomon didn't stop there. He goes on to talk about the hardships, the difficulties, the, thing, the problems that you run into with money. He said this in verse 13. There is another serious problem I have under the sun, and he said it's hoarding riches harms the saver. Hoarding riches harms the saver. Another way you could put that, the more you have, the more you hurt yourself by holding on to it. There's something about the more we have and the more we have. We begin placing our trust and putting it in the more than the God who gave us the more. And so Solomon says the hoarder also many times it becomes their downfall and they, because they hold on to it and becomes their own savior instead of God being their savior. Now the next one, Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 14. He says this, money is put into risky investments that turn sour and everything is lost. In the end there is nothing left to pass out to one's children. Here's how I'd summarize that one. The more you have, the more you have to lose. That's the good thing about my kids. They don't worry about me losing much because they know dad doesn't have very much in there and there's not much passed along to them. I had an interesting conversation with my son a few weeks ago. Somehow we got on this idea about one day we passed and trying to leave them some money. And, and Denise and I, we don't have a whole lot to leave, leave, leave behind for them. And I told him, I said, hey, we, 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 we're working hard to give you something, but we don't have a lot to give you. And I'll never forget my son. We're talking on the phone. He's in Dallas. I'm here. And he starts crying. I'm going, Jordan, what's wrong? And he said, Dad, your legacy in your life is what you're leaving behind for me. He goes, I don't want your money. I said, good, because I was planning on spending it, so you weren't getting it anyway. But, but we had this conversation. But, but there is this pressure, this stress as parents, as grandparents. When we die, we want to leave something behind. But that more and more and more of what we leave behind can so consume us planning to leave something behind that we miss the very present of the moment that we have with our family and friends. And then Solomon goes on to say this last, little, this last little bit of morsel of truth. Verse 15, he says, We all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed on the day we, as the day we were born, and we can't take our riches with us. Here's how I would summarize that if you're filling in the notes in your, in your handout there. The more you have, the more you'll leave behind that Solomon is echoing the very words that his father echoed as he was talking to the children of Israel when we studied him a couple of weeks ago, that we'll take nothing with us. You hauls will not make it into heaven. So the more we have on this earth, the more we'll simply leave behind. Now, let me be honest. At this point in the sermon, I'm about halfway through and you're thinking to yourself, remind me to never come to church again. Because that's the most depressing sermon I've ever had about money. That is like having a root canal with no Novocaine, okay? Who wants to ever sign up for that? And so you're kind of throwing up your hands going, if Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived the earth. That's true, but he's also the most oppressing man I've ever lived that has ever lived on the earth as well. And so you're going, what is the point? Money, money is just difficult. Money is bad. Is money bad? L- let me just clarify something that Solomon's not done yet. If we were to stop reading at that point in this passage, we really would walk out here going, what is the use of money? It just seems like it's negative, negative, negative. Bad, bad, bad. But yet Solomon doesn't stop there. In fact, let me keep reading for you there in verse 16 and 17. And here's what Solomon goes on to say. He says, and this too is a very serious problem. He's talking about this problem. It's about the money, of the difficulties that come with money. Remember, he's not saying that money is bad. He's just simply saying and identifying the difficulties that might come with more and more money. And then he goes on to say, people leave this world no better off than when they came. All their hard work is for nothing like working for the wind. And throughout their lives, they live under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged, and angry. He's going, this is the problem that I see, that people come into this earth, they come into this world, and they want everything about for themselves. They want pleasure. They want all the goodness for it. And when they take it all in for themselves, they don't leave this world, they don't leave the people around them better than when they got there. And he goes, how frustrating is that? How's discouraging, how angry that is. Do you know the feeling of the frustration, the discouragement, the anger when it comes to the hardships of money and some of the difficulties of money? I experienced it firsthand last night. Denise and I had to make our weekly run to Walmart. There was a time you could go to the grocery store or Walmart and spend $50 and not feel discouraged, not feel angry, and definitely not feel frustrated. We go in there, we get our grocery cart. We're just buying a few things. The kids are all coming in tonight, the grandkids, my kids, so we're having a full Thanksgiving. So we just wanted to buy stuff for breakfast and a few snacks. Now, we haven't even started thinking about Thanksgiving yet. We're just buying a few things to get us through the first few days. And the grocery bag, the buggy is not even half full. And we get up the pool there and ding, she's checking things, ding, checking things one by one. And she goes, that will be over $300. And I thought, did you pay, a, did you charge me a surcharge when I walked in here? I mean, why is this so much? I know there's not that much grocery. You know the feeling, right? Has anybody ever been to Costco and spent less than $100 in Costco? I just went in to get a hot dog and I had to pay $100 by the time I got out of there. But money, whether you have more or less, it can be discouraging, it can be frustrating, it can just make you angry. And that's what Solomon was saying here. When it comes to money, the money you hold in your hand is not bad, it's all the stuff that comes with that money that can be discouraging and frustrating and make you angry because it's hard. There's a hardship that comes with it. And then he goes on to say this in verse 18. He goes, even so, so he's going, okay, I'm kind of talking the negative side. I'm kind of talking the discouraging side. But even so, there's a positive side of more. He goes, even so, I have noticed one thing, at least one thing that is good. He goes, it is good for people to eat and drink and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life God has given them and accept their lot in life. You see, if you don't read that verse, and you should read the previous ones that we have just talked about, you feel like you need to walk around going, oh, this is so bad. Life is so terrible, and money is so bad, and life evolves around money, but money is so bad, and you shouldn't have more. And it just leaves you like, what's your disposition? But Solomon goes, no, there is one good thing about more, that a more allows you to enjoy life. He said, each of us has been given a lot in life. Best way I can explain the lot in life is I'm looking around this room. If I went and visited every single one of them at your home, every single one of your homes would look different. Some might be white. Some might be painted brown. Some might be three-story. Some might be two-story. Some might have a ranch style. Some might be new. Some might be old. Some might be decorated this style. Others are decorated this style. We all have a lot, and our home is on that lot, and every one of our homes will be different. Now, we don't look around going, well, they should all be the same. I mean, your lot should be like my lot, and your home should be like my home. Well, how come your house is blue and not brown like mine? No, no, we, we, we like the fact that we have individuality in our lots because our home is on that lot, and those homes are an extension of who we are. It's who God made us. It's who God created us, and that home reflects that. And here's what God's saying. When it comes to life, when it comes to money, each of us has been given a lot. Not a lot like bunches, but a lot like a house lot. And he goes, we need to accept that lot. If we didn't look at homes, but everybody pulled out, pulled out your financial portfolio, they would look different. And there's a tendency to look over and how come you have more? How come I have less? And, and we begin to point, that's not the way it is. God has given us who and what we are and provided us a lot of financial wealth around us. And he said, and God gave it to you so you can enjoy. You going? hold on a second, time out, Keith. I just thought we read all those morsels of truth and it talked about all the dangers and hardships of money. That's the hardships. But Solomon's going, but there's also, if there's hardships, there's also some good ships about money. That it is meant and designed for us to enjoy it. He goes on to say this in verse 19, and it is a good thing to receive wealth from God. So that the lot that we have, God gave it to us, and the good health for, to enjoy it. And then he ends up by saying, to enjoy your work and accept your lot in life, this is indeed a good gift from God. Again, did you see those things he said? It's good for people to eat, drink, and enjoy their work and the paycheck that comes with it. It's good to receive wealth from God, and it's also our lot in life that is a gift from God. And so then the question is, so which is it? Is Solomon psychotic? I mean like half of me is like, oh money's bad, and then he's going, but money's good. Which side is it? Here's the truth I want you to see. The truth about money is having more of it is not good or bad. See, money in itself is neutral. Money's not good, money's not bad. Think about it this way. I saw on the news on the weather that it's supposed to get cold on Thursday and maybe even snow on Friday. The reason I say supposed to, y'all, I'm so confused living in Colorado. Okay. Like I'll turn on the channel and watch one weather man and he says it's going to do this. Then I turn the station and the other weather person says it's going to do this. And then I turn another one and he says it's going to do this. Someone said today, here's what you do. You look at three um, TV stations, take the weather. You look at two apps, take the weather, and divide it by five. And that's what the weather might be. You know how they told me to know if it's going to snow here? You wake up and look outside your window. That's how you know it's going to snow here. So, so I'm so confused. But it says it may snow on Friday. Now, my kids are coming up, granddaughter's coming up, so it's going to be an amazing week. But I know when they leave at the end of the week, I'll say, thank you, Jesus, that they came, and thank you, Jesus, that they went home. I know, Denise, I'll be like, we want to rest. So here's my plan, okay? It's going to get cold. Let's just pretend it's going to snow like the weatherman says it's supposed to. And so I can see when the kids leave, i got this whole idea planned, that I'm going to say, hey, Denise, just come sit on the couch. Let's relax together for a little bit. You sit on the couch and I'll get some wood and I'm gonna put it in the fireplace because you know a fire always just kind of makes things cozy and nice and relaxful. And I'll just sit here and enjoy the, the fire. And then I know her favorite snack, and I'm gonna go bring her favorite snack in the living room for us to eat, and I'll probably get a bottle of wine and just say, you know what, let's sit here. We can watch whatever God leads us to watch, sports center or Hallmark show. Whatever God leads us to watch, we'll just sit here and we'll watch together. But here's what I know. When I put that fire put that wood and start that fire in the fireplace, that is what's going to set the mood, okay? There's something about that because we don't normally do it that we're just going, okay? So that's my plan. But what if I change my plan? What if after the kids leave, I sit her down on the couch going, honey, I just want to build us a fire and we can relax and I've got the bottle of wine on the coffee table. I've got some cheese and crackers. And I'm like, I'm going to build us this really nice fire. But instead of taking that fire and putting it in the fireplace, I move the coffee table and I build the fire right there in the middle of the living room. That way it's closer to us. We can get toasty. I know what you're thinking now. You're a fool. You're dumb. Okay, you can't do that. You're right. Because that fire would not set the moment. It would destroy the living room and our entire lives. Now watch this. That's the way it is when it comes with money and more money. It's not the more of money that is bad. It's how we use the more money we have that makes it good. Or bad and that's exactly what Solomon was trying to teach you. he says there are difficulties when you have more there are difficulties to come and if you're not aware of how those difficulties can affect your life and possibly even destroy your life it will be bad but if you're aware of those and if you keep track of those And you understand how the more of what God gives you can affect your life. But instead of letting it distract you and hurt you, you let it be a blessing and help you and those around you. He says, then it is good. And God gave you this lot in life not to be distracted and hurt, but to bless and to help. In fact, if you're filling in the next blank, here's what it says. Generosity allows our more to be a help than a hurt generosity allows our, our more to be a help rather than a hardship you see it's generosity becomes the neutralizing factor generosity becomes this thing that when you put on your more it keeps it on the help side and keeps it away from the harmful side let me tell you another illustration so if this makes sense let's say you've always been thinking about adding another room to your house you know just just another craft room living room area whatever but adding another room to your house but you never had the money. And so i walk up to you and i say, you know what? I've got $25,000. I'd like to bless you with this money and you can build on this extra room on your house that you've always wanted. You'd look at me going, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like that's what it's going to cost. And this is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Do you realize that might not be the greatest thing that ever happened to you? Because if I hand you the $25,000 to build this other room onto your house, like you've always wanted, I've just added to the headaches to your life. You've got to go find a contractor. That contractor, uh, tra- contractor has to go get permits to build that house. The permits may not work what you want to. Then you got to think about budgeting, and then you look at the cost of materials. Then once it's finally built, you've got to decorate it, and to decorate you've got to have more money. Do you see where I'm getting at? Not that it would be bad to build on, and not that that twenty-five thousand dollars would just be horrible, but we just need to understand that when you have more more money, more of the $25,000, and you use it all for your own self, it can easily turn into something negative in your life and not positive. But let's think about that $25,000 again. What if we had the $25,000? But rather than spending on buying or building an extra extension, extra room to our house that we want but maybe not need, we said instead of building on a room, what if we took the same $25,000 and built a house? Not a house for us because we already have our house. We already have our lot. But what if we used the same $25,000 and built a house for someone who doesn't have a house? If you've been coming the last couple of weeks, you're going, I know where you're going with this, Keith. I know. And here's where I'm going. As we've talked about generosity, one of the generosity initiatives that I've introduced or the generosity initiative in our priority giving, I've challenged us and, and had us just kind of think and pray about what if as a church we partnered with, there's a ministry and in, in, it's a worldwide ministry, but a ministry called YWAM, and they have an organization they partner with in Mexico, Mexico called Homes, with, with, with Homes of the Mission, and here's what they do. They go into Baja, Mexico, and Ensenada and Tijuana area, and they will build a home for $25,000 for a family that doesn't have a home. They go, it doesn't have a home. Are they homeless? Uh, if you're ever into Mexico, you can drive down the road, and on the side of the mountains there, you will see cardboard boxes, just shanties of just wood sometimes. Just, just, and it's not just for a homeless person. It is for families. That's all they have. That is their home. And so this organization, Homes for Hope, they come in and they vet the family. So they want to make sure it's not only just a needy family that really, really needs it, but they want to make sure it's a family that will take care of what's given them. And they vet these families and they partner them with these families. And then they come in with churches like ourselves, with organizations, nonprofits. And these organizations and churches will come in and volunteer to pay for a house of $25,000, but not just financially supported, we also get to support it with our treasures, our time, and our talents. That we're still trying to process or still trying to finalize the date, but at some point in 2024, towards the latter part of it, we will have the opportunity for 20 or 25 of us to go down there and actually build the house. Like, I don't even know how to use a hammer. Me neither. We'll make sure there's three or four people that do, and they'll just tell us when to hammer, okay? They will show us how to paint. But here's the coolest thing. Within three days... We will start with a slab, we will pay for it, and by the end of three days, we will hand the keys to a family of two, a family of three or four, mom, dad, and a couple little kids. And we will hand the keys to them and say, this doesn't give me headaches. This doesn't give me stress. Because now I'm taking this idea of generosity, and it's taking when I have more, and rather being difficult in my life, it's making it better in my life. You know, here in a few days, we'll probably all sit around our table at Thanksgiving, and if you're like my family, you'll take a few minutes, what are things that you're thankful for this past year, and you'll mention a few things. Can you imagine in a year from now, this family in Mexico that we've handed the keys to their own home, and they sit around the table, and the mom or dad asks the question, what are we thankful for this year? I can imagine little Miguel saying, who's six years old, I'm thankful that I have a house. I'm thankful for a church in America that not only gave me a house, they showed me who Jesus is by giving me the house. That little Miguel sees a clear picture of Jesus because of our generosity to this family. And you ask the question, how does giving a house show a picture of Jesus? Because Jesus is the most generous person out there. The Bible says this, that he gave his life for us. So when we resemble Jesus in our generosity, we are a living picture of Jesus to the watching world today. So we've been talking about it for like three weeks now. We're going to do generosity sermon one more time next week. Let me just kind of warn you or just tell you what I'm learning, the new preacher's learning. Next time I do a generosity series, in my last two weeks instead of four, okay, because you're going, okay, can we get something else besides generosity? But sometimes it takes that long for God to kind of get through us, into us to get it. But here's what I really want to challenge us today. We've been talking about this Homes for Hope. It's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to do it. This morning, the most beautiful picture I've ever seen in my life was my wife walking in with two Operation Christmas shoe boxes. You wonder why is that so beautiful? Let me confess to you. For the last 15 to 20 years of our life, no matter what church we've been in, we've always taken two boxes to fill up, one boy and one girl. But here's my confession We've never brought them back because our priorities never got up. Not that we were trying to be stingy, not that we were trying to be ungrateful, not that we weren't trying to be generous, but life was busy. And the time that you had to bring the boxes in by this day, and we didn't have time to go to the store, we didn't have anything, and this took place, so we just never, ever actually brought boxes in. Now, we had a mind of generosity. We had a desire for generosity over all these years, but we've never been generous. Because generosity is not proven by what I think. Generosity is proven by what I do. And so this morning, after we went shopping yesterday to fill the boxes full of stuff, and to see her carry them in here, Mm -hmm. there was this moment in me that I could just pray to my Jesus, and say, Jesus, today I got it. I don't think I got it last year at this time. I don't think I got it the year before at this time because we never brought the boxes and there was just this humble sweetness i just felt in my soul just going jesus thank you thanks for being patient it took me a long time to get it but today i think we got it and so here's here's, here's my prayer for our church is that we think about generosity in the context of the homes for hope But beyond that, because we need to be generous in everything we do. That's the reason it's not just purposeful giving that we talked about last week. It's our percentage and priority giving that we give every week to our ministry budget because we do so many other things with your generosity. But here's my prayer, is that we would be a church that has in the past, which we have, but continually be a church when it comes to generosity, that we get it. We don't just know it. We don't just feel it but we get it. And so may I challenge you as your pastor, just between you and God decide what is your act of generosity. Remember, not your heart of generosity, but what is your act of generosity. And I never know people's actual generosities. That's between you and God, but I can look around this room right now going, and there are people that have been so generous over the years. And may I just say thank you. You You don't know how much I gave I don't remember every person has their own lot so your generosity is not compared to someone else to determine if it's generosity it is your heart and it is your action and so I pray that we are a church that gets it with our head our heart and our hands and I can't wait to see what God does through it with it will you pray with me father thank you for your word Thank you that your word is true, whether it's 3,000 years ago with David and Solomon or 1,000 years ago with our Savior Jesus. Or God, if it's true for us today, it's all still true. And so I pray this, God, not for full baskets of offering, not for a special amount of money for a home, but God, I pray that you would just simply lead us to be generous. And you, Lord Jesus, you set on our heart what that generosity looks like. And in that, we'll give you all the glory. So thank you, Jesus, for letting us be a part of it. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen.